Wake up. Freedom's on the rise. This week says, that, says this. The John Birch Society considers communism only one arm of a, national, of a master conspiracy in which socialist American insiders are plotting to establish world government. Now, it also says, and here's Director John McManus, that's your public relations director, saying that former Secretary of State Alexander Haig and CIA Director William Casey are two of these master conspirators who are plotting to establish world government. Now, what do you say? You know, that kind of silly, asinine statement is what makes makes people laugh at the John Birch Society. Well, Tom, I'm sure being a long-standing member of the Rockefeller apparatus, uh, and as a member of the Council on Foreign Relations of long-standing, you're fully aware that you, there is an elitist core in this country that has seen value in subsidizing communism or protecting communism. It has? Sure. You're accusing me of subsidizing communism? No, no, I'm saying because that there I happen is, to belong no, to a, no, to there a is an foreign elite policy core. study no, group? No, no, wait a minute. There is an elite core in this country that has dominated American society. Well, I'm not one of well, them. The Trilateral Commission, the Trilateral Commission, Council on Foreign, Council on foreign Relations. State here's Department, I suppose. Well, let's face it, they've dominated the State Department for 40 years, and mm-hmm. uh, pretty much openly All so. Right, but what are they trying to do? Well, their objective now? is to try to bring about a gradual transition in our society, a dissolving of sovereignty, and a moving steadily to the left on the political spectrum. Well, who are the they? Belief the elitist groups that I mentioned, particularly key individuals and policymakers in the Council on Foreign Relations. Is the International Monetary Fund part of this? Well, I would say the International Monetary Fund has certainly been set up for the purpose of facilitating that transfer of sovereignty and transfer of wealth on the road. Right, we elected Mr. Conservative. Let me just finish the point, right. because otherwise we're going to have a lot of un- unanswered questions, that you are looking at a group that has worked to bring about a dissolution of national sovereignty on the road to world government. And certainly uh, you're familiar with uh, local professor Carol Quigley, who has been part of your club, in which he admitted all this. And he said in his book, Tragedy and Hope, the only thing I disagree is that we've worked to keep it a secret. Welcome back to Freedom's Rising. You are participating in the rise of freedom here on this July 13th, 2022. Wake up, freedom's on the rise. Today is Falling into the Movement Traps Part 9, Freedom's Rising, Episode 25. Freedom's Rising is more of the series, the concept, the philosophy, the hope and intention, where Falling into the Movement Traps is almost like the counterweight or the narrative that we're pushing forward to stay out of revolutionary movements that just end up uh, causing harm and suffering and put us back in a worse position. Not that they don't also have aspects in history of moving things forward, but there's a lot of uh, infiltration, there's uh, PSYOP, there's funding and fomenting of narratives that we need to be aware of from the microcosm to the macrocosm. You heard in an opening clip there that was uh, former U.S. Congressman Larry McDonald explaining explaining the NWO or the New World Order agenda, right? And the guys are like, the counterland foreign relations has nothing to do with anything, right? Ha ha ha. 
well, you, sir, are a big conspiracy guy, obviously. And it's funny because, you know, I didn't know or I wasn't really taught in my public school upbringing about the Council on Foreign Relations. I think the average American walking around today has no clue what the Council on Foreign Relations is, what the Trilateral Commission is, how these things sort of stem out of these uh, movements in themselves, like the movement towards a one-world government and the planning is at the Paris Peace Conferences or the League of Nations or how that might have led up to the United Nations and what something like the Council on Foreign Relations came in existence to initiate. Why is it here? What is it? Well, it's an arm of the Royal Institute of International Affairs, you see, and the arm is in the American uh, the American political sphere, and the purpose of the Council on Foreign Relations is to push America away from a more of a nationalistic stance and government into more of a globalistic stance and government. And I picked up a book a long time back called The Shadows of Power, uh, The Council on Foreign Relations and the American Decline by James Perloff, and he has a section in that book up on and the the book itself I think is not the end all be all of understanding this but it's a great starting point uh really blew my mind when i read it back like uh 7 years back and he goes through quite a bit of uh some false flags in here uh breaks down you know like the guy was talking about there there's alluding and mentioning of obviously carol quigley's work in this and how carol quigley's only problem with what these people were trying to do, uh, like in the Council on Foreign Relations, was what the, is that they weren't more open about it. And again, I, I think there's a reason why people like that congressman are mocked back in the 80s when he was giving that, and then uh, he had the ultimate coincidence happen to him shortly after that particular interview, and around 83 was when that was. Um, the ultimate coincidence here on page 213 of James Perloff's book says, On September 1st of 1983, the Korean Airlines flight 007, en route from Alaska to Seoul, was obliterated by two air-to-air missiles from a Soviet inceptor. All 269 passengers and crew, including 61 Americans, were lost. Soviet fighters had trailed the plane for over two hours nearly all observers agreed that it could not have been shot down without top clearance from moscow the question was why did the soviets do it why did they risk the inevitable backlash of world opinion to eliminate a harmless civilian airliner there had been something or someone on board important enough to make that consequence worth it there was someone all but ignored by the mass media, Dr. Lawrence Patton MacDonald, member of Congress. MacDonald was the most dedicated anti-communist on Capitol Hill. The review of the news noted, quote, from the time he took oath of office in 1975 until the moment of his death, Congressman MacDonald had systematically carried out the campaign against the Soviet communists of a sort which no other U.S. elected official had ever done on his own. Uh, that there's a reference to that author jeffrey st john in his book about the cal 007 tragedy days of cobra observed quote congressman lawrence mcdonald had spent 
his entire career warning against the use of terrorism as an instrument of Soviet policy, particularly the use of the threat of nuclear war by the Kremlin as a weapon to paralyze the United States and its Western allies, will to resist. MacDonald was, Washington, was Washington's most outspoken critic of trade and technology transfer to the USSR. He has the president and founder of Western Goals Foundation, which produced books and videos and tapes on Soviet-generated terror and espionage. He had recently written a series of articles about Yuri Antropov, the KGB, and the KGB. Voting appraisals gave him the most conservative rating in Congress during his five terms in office. And most significantly, Lawrence MacDonald was chairman of the John Birch Society, the world's largest and most sophisticated anti-communist organization. He was condemned by in uh, Pravda Izvestia and on Radio Moscow. Dr. Lawrence MacDonald was arguably the Kremlin's number one enemy. The odds against such a man, quote, just happening, unquote, to be on the flight the Soviets destroyed were astronomical. Yet the news media neglected the obvious potential significance. After the incident, a host of, quote, experts, unquote, were called in who assured the public that there was a, no specific reason for the attack. Instead, they explained it was due to the generalized phenomenon of Soviet, quote, paranoid concerning their airspace, unquote. The following statement by Secretary of State George Schultz was typical. And here's that really quick. The answer to a broader question of motivation seems to lie in the character of the Soviet Union. There is a massive concern for the security and a massive paranoia, and I think the act was an expression of the excessive concern over security. And it should be noted, it says here that the uh, John, the chairman of the John Birch Society, he was an arch enemy of the Soviet Union, um, but also of the American establishment, of which JBS is the most vocal criti critic. For years, the society had been intellectually at crossed swords with the CFR. Congressman MacDonald even wrote the foreword to Gary Allen's The Rockefeller File, in which he spoke out against, quote, the drive of the Rockefellers and their allies to create a one-world government combining super-capitalistic and communist under the same tent, unquote. When Lawrence MacDonald established the Western Goals Foundation, its stated purpose was, quote, to rebuild and strengthen the political, economic, and social structures of the United States and Western civilization so as to make it any merger with totalitarians impossible. Such a merger now looms closer than ever before. When the CFR delegation paid a visit to Gorbachev as, a, as his minions in February 1987, one could only reflect on how timely MacDonald's removal was from their global, globalist vision. Lawrence MacDonald is dead, but his cause survives, and so does the organization he left behind. And then the book goes into the John Birch Society... Um, and again, an easy read. It's a smaller book with many references. I think James Perloff does a good job at uncovering this CFR. Do I agree with every view that James Perloff holds and think that he's got it nailed? No, I do not, but I do appreciate his work. And he's also got a talk called the shadows of power. There was a book, a film created called, uh, the, 
um, I'm trying to think it was called, I, I just had it in my head, the Shadows of Power, and then there was a, called the Rings of Power or something like that, there was a documentary made, I remember because like Mark Passio was featured in it, Shadow Ring, that's what it was, Shadow Ring, I just remembered that, I put it in the show notes, and of course Shadows of Power, which James Perloff also has a good talk called The Shadows of Power. So it's not just a book. He also has a, a talk I used to share around back in the day. Um, but again, most Americans, most people are not aware of even what the Council on Foreign Relations is. It's a think tank, but it's more of a steering committee. They don't make laws. They're not elected officials. They're more of a group of intellectual elites and also... There's a number of people as part of this Council on Foreign Relations, people like Angelina Jolie, and also they have their own celebrity sort of figures that are a part of this, uh, you know, it's, it's part of the Rhodesian push to, uh, uh, for the Anglo-American establishment, or the, you know, also like the Canadian, uh, Anglo-Canadian establishment to infiltrate uh, governments such as the United States and uh, bring them back under the rule of the neo-British empire, which is really not the only way to look at that. There's there's much more components to the philosophy of one world government, new world order, um, these sort of phrases that get thrown around. Today, we're going to be getting back into the origins of the thinking surrounding the globalists, surrounding eugenics, surrounding uh, cybernetic uh, governance and control by getting back to the article, The Revenge of the Malthusians and the Science of Limits, uh, the article from The Unlimited Hangout by Matthew Irit, and that article was posted on June 28, 2022, so we'll be getting back to that article just again, we've been covering in Freedom's Rising, we opened up the free, Falling into the Movement Trap series, going into the more of the psychological components of do people really even want freedom? Is there such a thing as an escape from freedom? Is there such a thing as voluntary servitude? And how much does the coercion, the brainwashing, the uh, indoctrination, the propaganda, how much does that play into it? Or is that more like the cat and the fiddle, right? Is that more like the chicken and the egg? Is it something where the two are mutually, ex uh, they're not mutually exclusive, or are they? Do they play together this dynamic of people that don't really want freedom? And so we, of course, have corruption and chaos and uh, terror and evil ruling, because if you leave the Petri dish open, uh, all the bacteria and don't protect the Petri dish, the metaphor here would be that it would become overgrown with disgustingness and evil. So keeping it clean is to understand more about history, but then also how we enact that in our lives. What do we do about that? What are we doing? What are you doing to slow the long road into tyranny? The death of freedom, the death rattle of freedom, is it here? Or is it not? Is it up to you to fix that or not? Is it something that we need to be doing? Is it a motion that needs to be taken? Or is it something that we need to stop doing or have others or refuse to participate in and refuse to allow others to continue to do to us? Is it a trick question? And there's an all of the above option here lingering uh, in the midst. 
Uh, besides that, we've also been looping that into cybernetics. We've had the story of Nowhere book helping us to understand more about the history of utopian idealism and thinking like that and uh, the uh, originating of the Republic, which is sort of the first, uh, you know, representative democracy in a way. And it's more like communism uh, in the end where there's this central planning group of elite figures that get to decide what's the best for the whole, right? And uh, that's basically communism under another name or uh, even democracy is a very similar sort of thing, representative democracy and, and socialism uh, coming from the Fabian Society, who we'll get into here in this uh, article that we're reading about. So let's just dive into it in the essence of time. And then we're going to actually be closing out today's episode with some uh, contextualization, with some weaving from uh, brilliant Tony Myers of the Grand Theft World podcast. And again, I'm clipping out from that podcast because I've been catching up on episodes and really think that those guys have been doing a wonderful job at continuing the work there with the Grand Theft World show. Uh, obviously, Richard Grove is has a tremendous plethora of work to dig, dig into. And I used to, uh, a year or so back, over, and then the few years before that, work a lot closer with those gentlemen and again think that they're doing a wonderful job there at the grand theft world so go ahead and check that podcast out it's definitely a recommendation from me but the episode that we'll be clipping from was episode 85 around the five hour and 22 minute mark five hour 22 minutes and 57 seconds to be exact and we're going to play about 30 minutes of that at the end of this episode because I think it adds into what we're talking about today. So in the essence of time, let's go ahead and dive back into the section in the article where we left off was anti-Darwinian approaches to evolution, again, from the um, Unlimited Hangout article by Matthew Einhardt from June 28th, 2022, The Revenge of the Malthusians and Scientific and the Science of Limits. So it's riffing on Malthusianism and the Limits to Growth book by uh, published by a group linked to and th coming out of things like the World Economic, or not the World Economic Forum, the Club of Rome, uh, the Macy Conferences, the Eugenicists, and now we can see this sort of merging in with these futurists, the Fourth Industrial Revolution, the World Economic Forum, so on and so forth. And this article is going to help us to tie those aspects in. Not that it all ties in. We're just reading an article. We'll try to leave out the um, leaping and stretching things to be some sort of conspiracy. You know, we'll just try to keep it clean with the information that we're presenting here and go through the article. Although we are told too often today that no alternative systems ever existed outside of Darwin's theory of evolution, a closer inspection of science history during the 19th century proves that to be far from true. During this period, an anti-Darwinian scientific revolution was blossoming in the life under science and the leadership of figures like James Dwight Donna, Jean-Baptista Lamerick, Alexander von Humboldt, Georges Quiver, Carl Ernst von Barr, and Benjamin 
Silman. These scientists not only began questioning the static theory of nature as derived from a literal reading of the Bible, but made huge strides in realizing the higher causal mechanisms defining the flow of evolution. Unlike many of the modern scientists, these figures were never saw a dichotomy separating science from religion as, quote, science, unquote, was understood as nothing less than the investigation and participation in God's creation, and as such, the biosphere and all, quote, units, unquote, within, the, within it were implicitly defined as more than the sum of its parts and all fast-approaching theories of evolution that were driven by intention, harmony, and directionality. This outlook was showcased brilliantly by the great naturalist of the embryologists Carl Ernest von Barr, who wrote in his own On Purpose of Nature in 1876, quote, The reciprocal interconnections of organisms with one another and their relationships to the universal materials that offer them the means for sustaining life is what has been called the harmony of nature. That is a relationship of mutual regulation, just as tones only give rise to a harmony when they are bound together in accordance with certain rules, so can the individual process, processes in the wholeness of nature only exist and endure if they stand in a certain relationship to one another. Chance is unable to create anything enduring. Rather, it is only capable of destruction." So obviously that's claiming a different worldview than, you know, materialist atheist. I would, uh, me parenthetically coming in back to the article, the Imperial school of Huxley's X club denied not only creative, uh, creativity's existence from this higher metaphysical standpoint, but also denied the fact that humanity can uniquely translate the fruits of those creative discoveries into new forms of scientific and technological progress, which had the effect of increasing our species' ability to transcend our, quote, limits to growth, unquote, as, or parenthetically, or as modern neo-Malthusians have termed it, our, quote, carrying capacity, right? You hear these terms like, uh, you know, we're gonna we're gonna reach peak growth or peak population in the year two thousand and twelve or something. You know, all these marks are the nineteen eighties. We're gonna have this giant reduction in the population because we've reached peak oil and this. Uh, you know, these guys have a scarcity mindset. They need to, you know, they need to really work on their worldview outlook of uh, possibilities and uh, how much potential we have <laughs> as human beings. Um, but there's a graph here from the limits to growth in the article and the caption underneath that says the Malthusian trap at left and the club of Rome's 1972 updated Malthusian revival trap at the right, which imposed artificial obsolete constraints into human potential based upon the mathematical interpretations of humanity, ecosystems, and the mind itself. So they're, you know, all these formulations and predictions about where we're going to have the major, uh, war, famine, food production loss, and just collapse as a society. And how many of you who, like me, grew up in the 80s and 90s and got, you know, went to a public education were told how we were destroying the planet, that the polar bears were dying, that uh, we were having a, a massive carbon problem, that, uh, the, that we needed to save the planet. And this is where all that... Uh, all that propaganda comes from is these Malthusian 
ideas and worldview of looking at the world as a limiting and instead of seeing the infinite potential of human beings ability our remarkable resilience to calamity and our uh, ability to stretch beyond and reach out and grow through hard times and adapt and develop ideas anyways i'll get back to (laughs) the article the next section the dance of math and physics in the 20th century who leads and who follows in the opening months of the new century a major event took place that went far into applying huxley's mission the future of mathematics conference of august 1900 was a global event that attracted over 160 of the greatest mathematicians who wished to tackle the cutting-edge problems in science and deal with the relationships of physics and mathematics Obviously, these two fields together, or these two fields danced together, but the question remained, which would lead and which would follow? Considering the fact that the world population still numbered well below 2 billion at this time, the density of scientific discoveries across all domains was occurring at a rate unseen in human history. From new discoveries in biology, embryology, atomic physics, electromagnetism, aerodynamics and chemistry, the answer to the math versus physics question was increasingly becoming obvious. The fact that the growth of human knowledge was fast outpacing the limits of the mathematical language used by scientists, with time, new mathematical systems would be developed to describe the new creative discoveries being made. But no one could deny the creative thought that was leading in dance. What also was undeniable was how these new ideas were dramatically improving the conditions of countless lives through these great leaps in scientific and technological progress. Now we have a section, Hilbert and Russell shape a new paradigm. Again, reading from the article, um, The Revenge of the Malthusians and Science of Limits on the unlimitedhangout.com. Hilbert and Russell shape a new paradigm. Two particularly important figures who played leading roles in sabotaging science during the 1900 Paris Conference was, and whose ideas are inextractably linked to the later evolution of eugenics, cybernetics, and transhumanism, were Cambridge's Lord Bertrand Russell and Göttingen mathematical David Hilbert. Uh, Bertrand Russell being a Fabian socialist uh, who uh, was a very important in British philosophy and public intellectual thinking at the time. And uh, let's see, Fabian, uh, you know, he was in the Fabian Society with Sydney, Sydney and Beatrice Webb, I believe he had a parting of and didn't continue on with his relationship with the Fabian Society as I think he didn't agree with their approaches, but I think the overall worldview of this man was eugenics and um, a scarcity mindset, let's say, to simplify. So to continue back to the article, the duo aimed at nothing less than the reduction of the entire universe into a series of finite, internally consistent mathematical propositions and axioms. During the 1900 conference, Hilbert announced his 23 problems for, mathematic, for mathematics that need to be solved by mathematicians of the 20th century. 
While many of these problems were genuinely important, the most destructive for the purpose of the article centered around the need to, quote, prove that all axioms of arithmetic, arithmetic and are consistent, uh, parenthetically, problem two, and to, quote, axiomatize the phys- physical sciences in which mathematics plays an important role. So make axioms of the sciences and mathematics and how they play an important role. To continuing on, it took 13 years for Russell to achieve this objective in the form of his Principia Mathematica, which he co-authored with his former instructor and fellow Cambridge apostle Alfred North Whitehead. The name Principia Mathematica was chosen explicitly as a homage to Newton's Principia Mathematica, which was published 200 years earlier at the time of the 1900 launch of the Russell and Hilbert project. Both Eclude and Newton's flat interpretations of physical space-time were quickly crumbling with the advent of the new discoveries by Riemann, Curie, Weber, Planck, and Einstein, who were all demonstrating that the shape of the physical space-time had a living creative character, with each creative discovery a reciprocal interconnectedness between the, quote, subjective, unquote, inner space of human cognition and the objective, quote-unquote, outer space of the discoverable universe, was ever more firmly established. Exemplifying this beautiful insight and passion to seek the unknown, which was common amongst the great scientists during this fertile revolutionary period, Einstein stated, I wanted to know how God created the world, this world. I am not interested in this or that phenomenon, in the spectrum of this or that element. I want to know his thoughts. The rest are the details, unquote. Reflecting this same view in his own way, Max Planck stated, quote, The science enhances the moral value of life because it furthers the love of truth and reverence, love of truth displaying itself in the constant endeavor to arrive at a more exact knowledge of the world of mind and matter around us, and reverence because every advance in knowledge brings us face to face with this mystery of our own being. Next uh, section here. Closed system entropy must define the universe. Russell's closed system entropic mathematics was a direct reflection of his misanthropic view of entropy destined humanity, which can explicitly be seen in his 1903 statement, quote, that man is a product of his causes that has no previsions of, of the end they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collections of atoms that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve individual life beyond that the grave, that all labors of all of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system, and that the whole temple of man's achievements must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of the universe in ruins. 
All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of under-yielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. When pondering which set of metaphysical views has greater claim to truth featured above, it is worth asking the question, who actually made demonstrable discoveries into creation and who merely formulated ivory tower models devoid of any actual element of discovery? Part of the formula for success in Russell's mind hinged on the obsession with mathematical equilibrium in all things. When applied to society, it was no wonder that Russell was a devout Malthusian and lifelong promoter of eugenics and population control. One of his many displays of such views was made in the 1923 Prospects of Industrial Civilization, where he stated, Socialism, especially international socialism, is only possible as a stable system if the population is stationary or nearly so. A slow increase might be coped with by improvements in agriculture methods. But a rapid increase must in the end reduce the whole population to punery. The white population of the world will soon cease to increase. The Asiatic races will be longer and the Negroes still longer. Therefore, their birth rate falls sufficiently to make their numbers stable without help of war and pestilence. Until that happens, the benefits aimed at by socialism can only be partially realized, and the less prolific races will have to defend themselves against the more prolific by methods which are disguised, even if they are necessary. Russell's later writings in The Scientific Outlook, 1930, extend his views of a stationary global society into educational reform, where he defines the need to have not one, but two separate modes of education, one for the elite master class, who will become rulers, and one for the inferior slave class. Russell outlines the two castes in the following terms, quote, The scientific rulers will provide one kind of education for ordinary men and women, and another for those who are becoming holders of scientific power. Ordinary men and women will be expected to be docile, industrious, punctual, thoughtless, and contented. Of these qualities, probably contentment will be considered the most important. In order to produce it, all researchers of pseudo-analysis, of psychoanalysis, behaviorism, and biochemistry will be brought into play. All the boys and girls will learn from an early age to what is called cooperative, i.e., do exactly what everybody else is doing. Initiative will be discouraged in these children, and insubordination without being punished will be scientifically trained out of them. So, me taking aside here, Bertrand Russell's view was that what was is that which was carried out through the Prussian education model being implemented into the United States education system to make a slave class or a a class of workers, and then the managerial classes would be the elites, right, going off to Cambridge and Oxford and being back 
trained to be it through the road road scholarship and so on and so forth to be trained to be the managerial class of the working plebs right so continuing with the article for the ruling class quote except for the except for the one matter of loyalty to the world state and to their own order unquote russell explained quote members of the governing class will be encouraged to be adventurous of full and full of initiative it will be recognized that it is their business to improve scientific techniques and to keep the manual workers contended by means of continual new amusements, unquote. All of Russell's later writings promoted pol- policies including the preemptive nuclear bombing of Russia, a world government run by a scientific dictatorship, and teaching children to believe that, quote, snow is black, unquote, should be read with his racist philosophical worldview in mind. Next section in the article, Norbert Wiener and the Rise of Cybernetics. In 1913, as Russell's third and final volume of the Principia Mathematica was being printed, a young mathematics protege arriving at Cambridge from the U.S. on scholarship, his name Norbert Wiener, and (laughs) he soon found himself among a small group of boys who were closely mentored by Bertrand Russell and David Hilbert. Under Russell, Wiener was taught logic and philosophy, while Herbert Hilbert taught them different equations. Speaking of Russell, Wiener said, quote, When I came to study under Bertrand Russell in England, I learned that I had missed almost every issue of true philosophical significance, unquote. He called Hilbert, quote, the one really universal genius of mathematics, unquote. Throughout his entire life, Wiener was possessed by the obsession to express Russell's logical, closed system in practical ways. Despite the fact that the young uh, Lebanesian genius named Kurt Godel threw a major wrench into Russell's Principia program through his brilliant 1931 demonstration that no logical system could ever truly consist of with itself due to the self-reflexivity of nature of all existent systems. Russell pushed forward with the project full force, and Wiener was Russell's leading apostle. Other Russellites who promoted his theories of machine learning, including such names as Alan Turing, Oscar Morgenstern, Claude Shannon, and John von Neumann, While each mathematician had their own particular innovation to offer, they all were united by the unwavering faith that a human mind was a mixture of bestial impulses guided by closed-system machine logic and nothing more. In a computer, the whole is but the sum of the parts, and it must be such in all information systems, including human brains, ecosystems, and the universe as a whole. Quote, metaphysical, unquote, principles like soul, purpose, God, justice, and free will had no place in the minds of these human calculators. And I would say that that is the huge linchpin, an argument when you look at someone deriving purpose or meaning or striving or, you know, getting up when being beaten down, resilience, things like this in human beings can't just be explained. Uh, the, the, The ability to decide one way or the other on, on any certain whim, that's not described by these closed systems and closed systems thinking. That's sort of a not a paradox. It's more of a contradiction within that theory of a godless, soulless, 
there is no outside force. There is no creator. There is no, you know, larger metaphysical forces working in our lives at all. It's all just this input output, uh, computer processing, and then, you know, anthropomorphizing that thinking onto human beings and nature is where the flaw is in my opinion. But that's my opinion. And we'll get back to the article here. By the end of World War II, Wiener's, Wiener's work on feedback loops in aeronautics and radar led the mathematicians to devise a new language for managing complex human systems, which he soon discovered had applications in business, military affairs, and the entire nations. The term gave the new tool of control, the term he gave to the new term of, ugh, starting over, the term he gave this new tool of control was, quote, cybernetics, unquote. Describing his invention, Wiener said, quote, cybernetics, which I derived from the Greek word kumernates, or steersman, the same Greek word for which we eventually derive our word governor, unquote. By relying on binary closed system computer machines as his model for the human mind, Wiener demanded that metaphysical concepts be assumed to not exist beyond the merely physical characteristics of the measurable electrochemical properties of the brain. Describing his computer mind analog, Wiener stated, quote, It became clear to us that the ultra-rapid computing machine, depending as it does on the consecutive switching devices, must represent almost an ideal model of the problems arriving in the nervous system, unquote and that, quote, the problem of interpreting the nature and varieties of memory in the animal has its parallel in the problem of constructing artificial memories for the machine, unquote. Next section in the article, Cybernetics for Global Governance. Forecasting the inevitability of systems of global information control and thus political control by a godlike governing class as well as artificial intelligence, Wiener wrote, quote, Where a man's word goes and where his power of perception goes, to that point his control and in sense his physical existence is extended. To see and give commands to the whole world is almost the same as being everywhere, unquote. The key to understanding the attraction of cybernetics to a scientific dictatorship, desirous of total, uh, omniscience and omnipotence is the following. The, in the context of a large boat, only the helmsmen need have the idea of the whole. Everyone else need only understand their local compartmentalized role. With the application of cybernetics to the organization of economic systems, vast complex bureaucracies emerged, and only small nodes of, quote, helmsmen, unquote, embedded within the newly emerged, quote, deep state, unquote, complex who had access to a vision of the whole. This idea was carried forth by the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Developments, Sir Alexander King, who co-founded the Club of Rome and helped to apply these ideas across government of the transatlantic community during the 1960s and the 1970s. This system was viewed as by its prominence in the perfect operating system for a supranational technocracy to use to control the levers of the new world order. 
one of the most enthusiastic practitioners of the new system during the period of transformation was Pierre Elliott Trudeau, the the then newly imposed Prime Minister of Canada, who shaped a vast cybernetic revolution of the Canadian government between the 1968 to 1972 through Canadians, through Canada's Privy Council office. During a November 1969 conference on cybernetics in government, Trudeau said, quote, We are aware that the many techniques of cybernetics by transforming the control function of the manipulation of information will transform our whole society. With this knowledge, we are wide awake, alert, capable of action. No longer are we blind, inert powers, or fate. Here Trudeau's adoration of cybernetics had been shared by his Russian soulmate, Nikita Khrushchev, who who rehabilitated the band, quote, bourgeoisie pseudoscience, unquote, after Stalin had died. In his October 1961 to the 22nd Party Congress, Khrushchev said, quote, it is imperative to organize wider applications of cybernetics, electronic computing, and control installations in production, research work, drafting the designing, planning, accounting, statistics, and management, unquote. Trudeau worked closely with Sir, Sir Alexander King and Aurelio Pache in the formation of their new organization, the Club of Rome, which had a profound impact on global governance from 1968 to the present. Trudeau was a devout supporter of his new organization, which soon became a center of the neo-Malthusian revivalism during the year, early years of the 1970s. Trudeau had Trudeau even presented presided over the Canadian branch of the Club of Rome and allocated money to fund the MIT Club of Rome study, Limits to Growth, which became the holy book of sorts for the modern environmental organization. And then there's a picture here uh, in the article with Aurelio Pache and Alexander King, who were both uh, uh, unapologetic Malthusians, who sought to establish the language of systems analyst to prove that mankind was condemned to destruction unless world government and population reduction were not made global policy. Continuing on with the article, Alexander and the computer model made famous in ni- Alexander King and the computer model made famous in 1972. Limits to growth imposed a new. Schism between humanity's desire to develop versus nature's supposed desire to rest in mathematical equilibrium. This neo-Malthusian computer model was used to justify the culling of the unfit and overpopulated useless eaters, as was subsequently incorporated into the third official World Economic Forum meetings in Davos, where Aurelio Pache was introduced by Klaus Schwab to and showcased the limits to growth Magic to thousands of supporters and attendees. We have to do the little. Oh, I see. I'm not routing the audio to get the specific effect that I want here. Here we go. So if we penetrate the cabinets. Yes, we penetrate the cabinets. So if we penetrate the cabinets. I did that yesterday, and now I realize that because I didn't have it routed right, that that didn't come through. But I just now realized that, so that's pretty funny. 
but we have to, you know, when the when the when your boy Klaus Schwab comes in and he wants to penetrate and eat the bugs, he is going to cause everyone to eat the bugs and be happy with owning nothing. Um, Mr. Klaus Schwabian, and just notice the, the computer models here being used. Uh, when have we heard recently of other computer bo models being used to decide, you know, who needs to be essential, who needs to be not essential, who needs to be locked down, and what countries should do that? And then those computer models will end up being completely false and wrong. And uh, was it uh, Neil Ferguson? Was that the guy's name? Neil Ferguson computer models. We'll just throw that into the old web search here. Uh, the simul the simulations driving the world's response to COVID-19. Uh, and, and that Ferguson guy, I think, is involved in making all kinds of graphs and, and models that don't make sense and that we base all these decisions on. So it's just interesting there that we have more uh, computer models being used. <laughs> it's sort of like they're, they're justifying their own justifications, right, with their, with their own theories um, providing the backing. It's like if I were to reference myself for why myself is right right? Uh, continuing on with the article, this particular meeting was sponsored by Prince Bernard, Bernard of the Netherlands, a man who had already distinguished himself among the upper-level managers of the empire by founding the infamous Bilderberg meetings in 1954 and later the World Wildlife Fund for Nature in 1961, alongside Julian Huxley and Prince Philip Mountbatten. In addition to the incorporating in addition to incorporating Club of Rome population models into cybernetic-based planning, this summit also featured the official unveiling of the, quote, the Davis Manifesto, unquote, a document which formalized the concept of, sorry, starting over, the Davos Manifesto, a document which formalized the concept of, quote, stakeholder capitalism, unquote, and the fourth industrial revolution into the governing manifesto of this, quote, Junior Bilderberger, unquote, annual summit. Unlike Russell, who denied all cases of anti-entropy, Wiener allowed the existence of isolated islands of limited anti-entropy in the case of biology, uh, biology and human systems, which, tend, which tended to operate in ways that saw entropy, a.k.a. the tendency of systems to collapse into equilibrium and decrease. However, just like Russell, Wiener believed that cybernetics and information theory were shaped entirely by entropy, saying, quote, the nation, uh, sorry, the notion of the amount of information attaches itself very naturally to the classical notion in statistical mechanics, that of entropy, a.k.a. the second law of thermodynamics, unquote. In Wiener's mind, the universe was a decaying, finite place shaped by death, which would inevitably destroy the limited states of anti-entropic life, life which occurred purely by chance in random parts of, quote, space, unquote, and in, quote, time, unquote. Wiener stated the following in 1954, quote, It is highly probable that the whole universe around us will die in the, in the heat death, in which the world shall be reduced to one vast temperature equilibrium in which nothing really ever new happens and there will be nothing left but drab uniformity. Then there's a little chart here on the page of the second law of thermodynamics. And being that this is an audio podcast, 
I will reference you to the article to go check out the chart being referenced here because it's a little bit more than I'd want to explain over audio. So next, as you can see, we're starting to get into some really interesting tie-ins. Uh, even though it doesn't all tie in, there's not some big large conspiracy. The World Economic Forum is not trying to carry out uh, depopulation with their Great Reset. Uh, there, there's nothing like that. Uh, there's no link, you know, to the Club of Rome and to people like Bertrand Russell's thinking and like the Huxleys uh, and their worldview of limited growth and being able to then take the scientific dictatorship towards the goal of protecting humanity by depopulation techniques and uh, um, doing that through methods, which most people are, have no clue. Most people are just not aware. And that's the point of this show, and is to make people more aware of the larger revolutions, the larger agendas taking place, such as the Greater Reset, or I slipped up there, the Great Reset. You should also be informed of the Greater Reset, which is the uh, event put on by Derek Bros and John Bush. That's a different topic. Uh, moving on. The Macy Conferences on Cybernetics. From 1943 until 1953, Wiener's cybernetics and his information theory corollarily became the rallying points for the new scientific priesthood. The priesthood would, would gather together leading thinkers of every branch of knowledge and effort similar, uh, bleh, an effort similar to the previously made by Thomas Huxley and his Royal Society X Club. These conferences were funded by the Josiah Macy Foundation, which had been created by the Brigadier General Marlborough Churchill, a cousin of Winston Churchill, in 1930, with the primary aim of moving funds into eugenics research in both the U.S. and Germany. Alongside its sister organization, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation would lead would fund leading Nazi eugenicist. Ernst Rudin from the 1928 throughout the 1930s, while also sponsoring research led by British and American eugenics societies. As Anton Chaitkin points out in his British Psychiatry from Eugenics to Assassination, the Macy Foundation founder and control controller Jean Marborough had formerly headed the military intelligence's black chamber from 1919 until its disbanding in 1929. The black chamber interfaced closely with British intelligence and served as a model for the U.S.'s National Security Agency, NSA. On March 5, 1946, the NSA was integrated into the British Commonwealth intelligence infrastructure with the signing of the UK-USA Signals Intelligence Agreement that gave birth to the, quote, Five Eyes, unquote, alliance. It is also no coincidence that this occurred on the very same day that Winston Churchill delivered his infamous, infamous Iron Curtain speech in Fulton, Missouri, which formalized the Cold War. Starting in 1945, and desperately in need to prevent the spread of American systems of political economy and in an international New Deal that had been put into motion by President Franklin D. Roosevelt, the Macy, the Macy Conferences on Cybernetics began meeting every six months. 
These conferences brought together Tavistock-connected psychiatrists, biologists, neurologists, computer engineers, sociologists, economists, mathematicians, and even theologians. Wiener described these conferences, which shaped the course of the Western policy during the next 75 years, saying, quote, For human organization, we sought to help from the anthropologist Dr. Gregory Bateson and Margaret Mead, while Dr. Ozark Morgenstern of the Institute of Advanced Study was our advisor in a significant field of social organization belonging to economic theory, Dr. Kurt Lewin represented the the newer work of the opinions of opinion sampling and the practice of opinion making, unquote. The next section here, social engineering drives the post-world order. And I think that is the last section as we work to the conclusion of this article. For those who may not know, Dr. Bateson was the leading controller of the CIA's MK Ultra program, which ran from 1952 to 1973 as a multi-billion dollar covert operation designed to study the effects of, quote, depatterning, unquote, on the both individuals and groups using mixtures of electroshock therapy, torture, and drugs. Oscar Morgenstern was the inventor of the, quote, game theory, unquote, which played a dominant role in both military planning of the Vietnam War as well as economic systems for the next 70 years. Dr. Kurt Lewin was the leading psychiatrist from London's Tavistock Clinic and a member of the Frankfurt School that organized a concerted, a concerted program to eliminate the sickness of national patriotism, belief in truth, and family love throughout the Cold War period. A prominent conference member and planner of this operation was Dr. Sir Julian Huxley. Huxley was a leading eugenicist and imperial grand strategist who worked closely with fellow Fabian social leaders Bertrand Russell. Huxley shared Russell and Wiener's devout belief in the universal entropy, stating in 1953, quote, Nowhere in all its vast extent is there any trace of purpose or even perspective significance in the impelled from behind by blind physical force, a gigantic jazz dance of particles and radiations in which the only overall tendency we have so far been able to detect is that summarized in the second law of thermodynamics, the tendency to run down. Julian Huxley was the founder of UNESCO and president of the British Eugenics Society. As he was beginning to formulate his concepts of, quote, transhumanism, unquote, and while he was organizing the Macy conferences, the Macy cybernetic conferences, Julian also found the time to create the United Nations Education, Science, and Cultural Organization, UNESCO, in 1946, drafting its founding manifesto. His entropic view of biology and physics was clearly expressed in his bone-chilling political views, wherein he writes, quote, The moral for UNESCO is clear. The task laid upon it of promoting peace and security can never be wholly realized through the means assigned to it. Education, science, and culture. It must envisage, uh, sorry, it must envisage some form of world political unity, whether through a single world government or otherwise. 
as the only certain means of avoiding war in its educational program, it can stress the ultimate need for a world political unity and familiarize all people with the implications of the transfer of full sovereignty from separate nations to a world organization, unquote. But don't worry, folks, there's no philosophy or people out there working on this sort of one world organization and uh, destroying the nation states to achieve that, um, even though, you know, these people at the United Nations now and the World Economic Forum and the World Health Organization and the IMF and the World Bank and the BIS are all involved in that strategy. Um, there's nothing to, to see there. You know, there's nothing going on with uh, the current Prime Minister of Canada, Trudeau, being involved in any of these agendas. Back to the article. Working in tandem with the World Health Organization, itself created by the Tavistock psychiatrist named G. Brock Chisholm, and funded entirely by the Macy Foundation, Huxley organized the creation of the World Federation of Mental Health, WFMH. The WFMH has was overseen by the Bank of England's Montague Norman and directed by the head of London's Tavistock Clinic, Madge General John Rawlings-Reese, whom Montague directly appointed. Chaitkin points out that among the first projects of the WFMH and Macy Foundation jointly organized were the, quote, Conferences on Problems of Health and Human Relations in Germany, unquote, in 1949 to 1950, which ensured that the Frankfurt School authoritarian personality thesis was drilled into the minds of German children. The goal was to persuade the German people that the fault of Hitler's rise to power was not to be found in looking for the international conspiracies or City of London's Wall Street manipulation, but rather the, author- quote, authoritarian psychological genetic, unquote, disposition of the German people themselves. This program was overseen by the Tavistock director, Kurt Lewin, who by the time, and by the way, there's all, all a lot of these are like hyperlinks, the references for these things, so you'd have to actually see the article to go and find those references. So there's references to a lot of this stuff being pointed out. Back to the article. This program was overseen by Tavistock's director, Kurt Lewin, who by this time became a leading figure of the Frankfurt School and innovator of a new brainwashing technique called, quote, sensitivity training, unquote, which relied heavily on the use of guilt complexes and group pressure to break the will of the target group, either in a classroom or the workplace, by absorbing any original thinkers into states of groupthink. Lewin's work on the WFMH and Tavistock also became the foundation for today's critical theory, doctrines that threaten to undermine the entire scope of Western civilization. To the degree, and that, you know, again, going back to Kurt Lewin, uh, MK Ultra, uh, that MK is mind control, uh, a German word why it's uh, uh, K, and not a C, and lots of people from a certain operation known with paper clips uh, might have been involved also in the study of MK Ultra and these new techniques uh, for critical theory and uh, making people fall into groupthink patterns and by guilt, like you're destroying the planet, you're killing the polar bears, you are burning down the Amazon rainforest. And it's all because of your SUV and the fact that you eat meat. Does that sound familiar at all to 
with some of these techniques that might be have been deployed on ourselves, people like in my generation? Not at all, right? There's nothing to see here. Back to the article. To the degree that individuals think for themselves and are inwardly directed by factors of one, creative reason, and two, uh, conscience, and groupthink systems no longer behave according to the sort of statistically predictable rules of entropy and equilibrium which control hungry oligarchs and technocrats demand. Erasing that factor of, quote, unpredictability, unquote, by making the argument that all leaders who profess truth are simply, quote, authoritarian personalities, unquote, and, quote, new Hitler types, unquote, the virtue of mobs was raised above the virtue of the individual genius and initiative which continues to plague the world to this day. Cybernetic conferences involved throughout the 1960s, evolved throughout the 1960s to the 1970s, defining them, finding themselves increasingly integrated with the international organizations like the United Nations, the World Health Organization, NATO, and the OECD. At this as this integration occurred, the new technocrats became ever more influential in setting the standards of the new world operating system. Meanwhile, national governments found themselves increasingly cleansed of nationalistic moral leaders like John F. Kennedy, Charles de Gaulle, Enrico Mate, and John Defenbaker. This resulted in deeper integration of both systems, analysis and cybernetics into the governing framework of the new transnational power structure, after Julian Huxley coined the term, quote, transhumanism, unquote, in 1957, the cult of artificial intelligence gilded by a belief in the inevitable merger of man and machine grew increasingly with major events as the man-computer symbiosis thesis of J.C.R. Lickleader in 1960 and the application of these systems into the Department of Defense programs like War Games Command Systems, SAGE, Semi-Automatic Grounded Environment, and Unmanned Jet Plane Defense Networks, DARPA's Augmented Cognition Computer Soldier Dyads were yet another expression of this perverse idea with hundreds of millions of dollars spent in a creation of enhanced cyborg soldiers. And, of course, DARPA being, like, behind pretty much every damn thing that's going on these days. Over the years, followers of this new cult soon found themselves operating as hel helmsmen in the new global ship of Earth, giving rise to the new global elite class of technocrats and the oligarchs who are loyal only to their castle and ideology. They strive to shape the minds ever more closely to the model of idea-computing machines capable of logic, but not love or creativity. The more that these cultish technocrats like uh, Yuval Harari, Ray Kurzweil, Bill Gates, and Klaus Schwab could think like cold computers while getting the masses of the earth to do the same, the more their thesis that, quote, computers must obviously replace human thought, unquote, could be maintained. Now, this is an excellent article, an excellent conclusion, and a foreshadowing into a nightmarish uh, state of being where you're some sort of chimeric uh, creation of these technocratic um, anti-God, anti-nature, anti-soul, 
anti-love and anti-life thinkers promote uh, the sort of death of the human species and replacement uh, by technology in, in as a solution. And what they're working towards is the uh, the merging of humans and technology. And, and that's their solution, right? That's their ultimate solution here, the ultimate final revolution, right, that we're headed towards. And if they're incorrect, which it, this uh, podcaster's opinion they are, uh, then what does that mean for humanity? What does that mean for the next hundred years, the next thousand years for us as we experiment with our biological computer systems, right? As we're just being looked at as a biological computer, just inputs and outputs. It's all uh, it's all uh, death, basically. Like we're just dead matter with no soul. It's just, you know, uh, an atheistic, materialistic worldview being hoist upon us and Again, going back to how we opened up with people not even understanding something like the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, unfortunately, I see that most people are so um, they're so enamored with the bread and circuses and the fear porn, and also so apathetic and lethargic towards learning anything outside of what they think they already know and seeing the world as what they see in some sort of you know, paranoid conspiracy way by even talking about the things that we've been talking about today, or so brainwashed and um, accepting of how they were brought up and taught about from these worldviews that we've talked about today, that they actually agree with the eugenicists. They agree with the Malthusians that humans are just a plague on the planet, that we're just a bunch of uh, racist white males that need to be destroyed and we likely destroy ourselves and that there's nothing uh, beyond that for the human race to uh, go through or, or endeavor and that it's as simple as an, uh, the thermo law of dynamics, the second law, that we're just headed towards collapse, that the whole universe is going to collapse. And, you know, what sort of hope and what sort of vision does this give our children for the future uh, with, with this extremely materialistic, atheistic worldview. I would say that it's depressing and, and harmful to the children to be indoctrinating them with these beliefs and that they're destroying the planet and that they are the ones who are at fault for the things that are going on. And again, though, making these groupthink propaganda techniques that can be used that were learned out of the studies of MK Ultra that were then hybridized and modernized for our modern uh, schooling systems that continue on this pattern and process into the children. That's what we need to avert. That's why I recommend pulling your children out of school. I recommend raising them yourselves and making the time and the responsibility to do that. I see that as a major solution to the problems of our world today is parents getting back in touch with actually parenting and using uh, the, the modern technology in a good way and leveraging it to be able to teach our children through that technology at home and not put them in the direct uh, barrel of a gun known as the public education system. But all even non-public education systems are still influenced by these things that we've been talking about today. Now, I'm going to exit the episode here again going to Tony Myers, who's going to come hit a home run on the tail end of that uh, with his reading of some of excerpts from Fire in the Minds of Men. And then he also gets into a, 
an article from chapter one of the book Understanding Media, The Extensions of Man by Marshall McLuhan in the section, The Medium is the Message. And that is going to close out the episode today. Again, you've been listening to Freedoms Rising. And by listening and sharing and participating in Freedoms Rising, you are freeing more minds today with Freedoms Rising. And we are at freedomsrising.live, where you can find this series. The overall work that I've put out over the years and will continue to do so will always be at tylerbloyer.com. And you can sign up to the email newsletter there at tylerbloyer.com where I send out if daily, if not every other day, emails to update you about the episodes that we're putting out and any announcements that we have. I appreciate your time and attention today as we read through that wonderful article written uh, by uh, at, at the Unlimited Hangout by Matthew Irit. Thank you, Matthew, uh, for putting out that great uh, tapestry of information to help us understand the situation that we're in today better with the COVID-19 and the Great Reset uh, unfolding and helps us contextualize through history where we're at today and where we can see ourselves going into the future, which sometimes can look quite dark, but I still am more of a white pill optimist, even though sometimes it may seem as though I'm quite black-pilled. As a Matrix reference, sort of, because they used red and blue pills. <laughs> now there are black, white, red, and blue. I think there are some green, some green pillars out there. Anyway, thank you guys, and we'll see you in the next episode. We're cutting out here with Tony from Grand Theft World, episode 84. That's right. Episode... 85, sorry, episode 85, uh, Biden's Laptop Matters was the title. And we'll see you guys next time. Thank you. Wanted to quickly come back and just, they said something in the beginning that sort of caught my attention that I think needs to be addressed. And that we're talking about these mediated interfaces by the use of technology. Uh, Matthias referenced a philosopher early in the early 20th century. I'm not familiar with him. When I was Lebon, or if it was someone else, it wasn't a psychiatrist, I don't think, or a psychologist, it was a philosopher that mentioned, uh, that sort of distinguished between uh, mass formations of the past and mass formations in the, the, I guess, the late 19th and early 20th century in regards to modern industrial societies. There's an isolated mass formation, and that's a, a novel type of sort of uh, mass movement, mass formation that's taking place where people feel isolated. Whereas before, you had an element, uh, at least a social element, correspond with the the idea of a mass formation. This time, you feel completely isolated, which amplifies um, the anxiety, the free-floating anxiety, uh, the need to ground that free-floating anxiety to continue this sort of <clears throat> metaphor. Um as though it's um, some sort of a static electric field that needs to be grounded, you know, um, <clears throat> or uh, electrical circuit, excuse me. <clears throat> Point is, um, that's an interesting concept. I think it's important to, let's revisit a couple things here that we've already gone over tonight, but I just want to bring to people's attention again. Rich brought this up earlier. I think it's an important quote. This comes from Fire in the Minds of Men, which I have my copy over there. I think I got it out last week, but I didn't share a quote from it. But I don't have one of those fancy book cams, as people know. But obviously, he already played, he already showed this. But in 1843, I just want to go over this again, because I'm going to go over another book here that I think highlights. I want to, I want to make a point here that's larger in scope um 
that corresponds exactly to what Matthias is saying, but gets to the heart of what it means to be human, how what it means to be sort of a, a, a creature that seeks out greater meaning, a meta meaning a, 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 to their life, a uh, greater narrative that's usually um, supplied by religious institutions or uh, society or culture at large, our extended families, just being a part of something. It's usually the meaning is mediated by at least feeling as though we are have some sort of influence on someone else's life, either for the positive or negative, usually hopefully for the positive. And that in some sense gives us a, satisfies a, an aspect of our ego and keeps it in balance and in check. Now, I want to reread this again, and we're going to go back to an earlier quote from this book. Then I'm going to go to another book. Um, well, it's an essay. It's actually the first chapter, I think, of um, Marshall McLuhan's book. Uh, under, uh, I forget the name of the book, but the chapter is called uh, The Medium is the Message. And it came out in the 1960s, and I'll get into that in a second. But first, I just want to quote this idea of cybernetics. We even get in a little bit into Norbert Wiener and uh, the human use of human beings, because they keep going back to, and Kybernetes be the, the, the helmsman who steers or directs a ship, this idea that you're steering and directing either a, an actual ship or the ship, it can be a metaphor for one's mind. Um, it can be a metaphor for controlling either yourself or large groups of people, but they always saw it as sort of a closed system feedback loop where each part is working to correspond and make the whole operate and work as, as a, as a whole entity. Um, so let's go back here to prophecy, the emergence of intelligentsia. This is part of, uh, section is part of, uh, fire in the minds of men by James H. Billington. In 1843, B.F. Trentowski invented the word cybernetics, which the earlier term was kybernetes, which was associated with the helmsman of a ship. Anyways, back to the text. To describe the new form of rational social technology, which he believed would transform the human condition. In his neglected work, The Relationship of Philosophy to Cybernetics or the Art of Ruling Nations, and you can see the relationship, at least etymologically, to the idea of controlling a ship, the Kybernetes, the, the, the helmsman of the ship that keeps all pieces functioning uh, in their proper order. Now you're, you know, controlling all the pieces that make up a, a nation. Anyways, go back to the text here. He also invented the word intelligentsia in a passage challenging the leadership of the nationalist poet Adam uh, uh, Mikowitz. Trentowski called him out of touch with the new generation and the new spirit. And without getting into uh, that, I want to actually go back here to some of the origins of the idea of sort of cybernetics and how it relates to the concept of um, uh, mystery schools and symbolism and sort of uh, you know the early forms of religious and spiritual thinking. So this comes from, I think this is an earlier, it's probably page 16 here. I don't know if that page actually corresponds. But when you look up to cybernetics, there's a PDF copy online, and I can pull out my other book just to verify. But this is I've used this before, and it's pretty good. Uh, this middle paragraph here is very interesting. And this gives an insight into when Matthias is talking about this idea of like psychological energy and how we're devoting psychological energy as though it's some sort of like ungrounded energy that is seeking some sort of conduit in which to ground itself and connect itself up to. And that, and by doing so, there's a sort of shared energy. Uh, whatever you're giving your energy over, you're receiving back from the leader or the, the group that is 
um, you know, uh, leading this mass formation. And you sort of see this inherent feedback from that, whether it's, you know, Nazi Germany, he talked about uh, the Iranian Revolution in the 1970s, we can talk about the USSR, um, various religious organizations in history, uh, the early formations of Christianity, and Islam for that matter. Um, it goes on and on, but without diatribing too much, I want to get into this. So, in the middle paragraph here, we shall deal repeatedly with the linguistic creativity of revolutionaries. Linguistic creativity, keep that in mind, who used old words, democracy, nation, revolution, and liberal, in new ways, and invented altogether new words like socialist and communist. Their appealing new vocabulary was taken over for non-revolutionary usage, as in the adoption of Republican and Democrat for competing political parties in post-revolutionary America, or in the conservative co-optation of nation, liberal, and even radical in late 19th century Europe. Revolutionaries also originated other key phrases used by non-revolutionary social theorists in our own century, cybernetics, intelligentsia. Even speculation about the year 2000 began not with the futurology of the 1960s, but with a dramatic work written in the 1780s by the same figure who invented the word communist. So it's as if words have a certain emotional charge to them, you know, and that's what he's sort of getting at, that when words relate to terms that relate to concepts, and concepts are purely immaterial abstractions of the human mind, that we give over enormous amounts of uh, emotional energy too. So he's sort of recognizing that these words, even if they're from non-revolutionary sources and authors that were speaking of them in a philosophic context, this personalized, impersonal, it doesn't matter, this passionate, should say, they they're taken over by revolutionaries. There's a there's like the they can consider them in a way the first type of memes that sort of uh, reimagine themselves, reinvent themselves in revolutionary minds. And how these words become co-opted, they're not quite neologisms, literally new words, but they're sort of older words that have a certain emotional charge to them that uh, are carried forward by revolutionaries, by people that are able to weaponize them in a certain way because of the sort of man's penchant for symbolism, archetypes, you know, spiritualism, conceptualization, ideological biases, so forth and so on. In fact, uh, Billington goes on to say in the next paragraph here, the origins of revolutionary words and symbols is more than antiquarian interest. For in the contemporary world where constitutions and free elections are vanishing almost as rapidly as monarchs, revolutionary rhetoric provides the formal legitim- legitimation of most political authority. The historian's path back to origins leads, however, into often murky labyrinths and requires a willingness to follow seminal figures and leaps of fantasy to remote times and on long marches into distant spaces. Revolutionaries, no less than prophets of the Judeo-Christian Muslim lineage, seek to find their holy other in historical time. They tend to become more extreme in the present as they idealize an even more, and excuse me, an ever more distant past. Those who glorified pre-Christian Druids tended to outstrip in fanaticism those who looked only to the early Christians. And he's just using Christianity or the Abrahamic faith as an example here, that the further in the past it becomes, the more generalized, the more decontextualized it becomes, the more we build up a story in our mind about 
what actually happened and what meaning we can derive from it, what emotional energy will give to it. I think that's very important because there's like a feedback in a way with the past, even if it's not a feedback that's correct. It's a feedback with what we want to believe about the past and how we'll co-opt those terms from the past, give them sort of new life, a new sort of energy to them, and seek to ground them in these mass formations. So I think that's a very interesting idea of like cybernetics, for example. We talk about B.F. Trentowski and the intelligentsia. These are all words that have been co-opted by individuals like Norbert Wiener, right? And here's a man. He wrote a book. Uh, when was this? Uh, 1954, first published in 1950, The Human Use of Human Beings. And he talks about a number of situations. I've I've shown this book uh, before when I've hosted. I'm not going to get into this one specifically right now because I want to get into a different one. I've really never got on the record that I think is really important. This is actually an essay. And I think this is mm, right. Understanding Media, the Extensions of Man was the book published by Marshall McLuhan in 1964. Um, But the first chapter of that book, and if people aren't aware of who Marshall McLuhan is, I'll just give a quick overview. He was a Canadian philosopher. He was um, a social critic and a philosopher. Um, He was a, a polymath in many respects. Uh, he understood so much in literature, uh, classical literature, and modern literature, and had was a, a futurist in understanding and critiquing the impact of sort of, <laughs> not to steal Bertrand Russell's title here, but the idea of how science is impacting the way we're experiencing our reality with these mediated interfaces. So Matthias is saying this is the first time he, he got this concept from uh, uh, this philosopher he referenced, I think it was Le Bon, but I can't remember. Um, talking about how this mass formation is different because we have this technology that makes us feel even more isolated. This is what Marshall McLuhan has been warning about for a long time. And if I can just read a couple of paragraphs from Marshall McLuhan's work, before I even get into the paragraphs, real quickly, I think it's important to point out that Terence McKenna once gave it interesting, and this is where I first came across Marshall McLuhan like 15 years ago when he was talking about him, like the impact of a mediated interface is like the impact of a drug on consciousness. It changes consciousness. It quite literally changes consciousness. Um, the We know this. It sort of takes you from an alpha sort of consciously aware state into a beta wave state where you're more susceptive and passive to information that you're taking in, no matter how critical and intelligent, critically thinking and intelligent the individual is, they're much more passive and willing to take in the information that's being presented through them through, the, through these these mediated interfaces. Um, and so, you know, going back to some interesting quotes from from uh, Marshall McLuhan and the medium and the message, I just want to get a couple on here that I think are really important. Um, this is just the first paragraph. In a culture like ours, long accustomed to splitting and dividing all things as a means of control, It is sometimes a bit of a shock to be reminded that, in operational and practical fact, the medium is the message. This is merely to say that the personal and social consequences of any medium, that is, of any extension of ourselves, anything that comes from the army, anything that represents a technology, result from the new scale that is introduced into our our affairs by each extension of ourselves or by any new technology. Thus, with automation, for example, the new patterns of human association tend to eliminate jobs is true. That is the negative result. Positively, automation creates roles for people, which is to say depth of involvement in their work in human association that a preceding mechanical technology had destroyed. This meaning there's a change in technology, change in uh, lifestyle, change in the situation, how people interact with it. Technology sort of dictates how people or that I guess we define ourselves by the way in which we use technology. 
Many people would, that's what he's sort of saying. Back to the quote. Many people would be disposed to say that it was not the machine, but one, but what, but what one did with the machine that was its meaning or message. In terms of the ways in which the machine altered our relations to one another and to ourselves, it mattered not to the least whether it turned out cornflakes or Cadillacs. The restructuring of human work in association was shaped by the technique, this is important, of fragmentation that is the essence of machine technology. Fragmentation, atomization, um, you're nothing but a sort of component part of a larger system and not your own inherent system. That has that shares in a likeness to the the nature itself. That's a separate issue. Back to the quote, or back to the first uh, paragraph here. The end here. The essence of automation technology is the opposite: is the integral and decentralist in depth. Just as the machine was fragmentary, centralist, and superficial in its patterning, patterning of human relationships. <clears throat> so I think you know. And actually, I want to skip here to a couple more quotes because uh, this is really interesting. This is on page 10, uh, middle of the page here. Failure in this respect has for centuries been typical for and total for mankind. The subliminal and docile acceptance of media impact has made them prisons without walls for their human users. As A.J. Liebling remarked in, in his book, The Press, a man is not free if he cannot see where he is going, even if he has a gun to help him get there. For each of the media is also a powerful weapon with which to clobber other media and other groups. The result is that the present age has been one of multiple civil wars that are not limited to the world of art and entertainment. He's speaking about civil war in a very abstract sense here. In War and Human Progress, Professor J.U. Neff declared, Total wars of our time have been the result of a series of intellectual mistakes. And he gets into more of that. Now, I want to see if there's one more quote I wanted to bring oh. uh, to ping up here. This is actually really interesting. And this is sort of the last quote I want to, the or last paragraph I wanted to point out about, and to highlight the important, the, the importance of what Matthias Desmet re- referenced from that early 20th century philosopher that talked about the difference in the type of mass formation, this sort of disintegrated, atomized individualism, or not, not individualism, but sort of, um, uh, lack of individualism from the atomization through that's being mediated through this machine interface where we're more isolated in a mass formation. So in, in other words, we get in these feedback loops or the clo- these closed systems with individuals that we feel we that have a charismatic draw, that we have some sort of penchant for their own ideological way of seeing the world, and we give over all our energy to that. So there's no social component there. It's being mediated through some sort of interface. And that's why they called it lonely mass from or lonely mass formation or something like that whereas the first time where people aren't getting together in person experiencing that shared energy that happens in groups this is something that's being mediated directly through a machine interface it's the first time we've really ever seen this in history whether it's a radio uh old transistor radio or whether it's a tv or now it's with you know these computers and virtual reality and god knows um you know anyways getting back to this last paragraph here If the formative power in the media are the media themselves, that raises a host of large matters that can only be mentioned here, although although they deserve volumes, namely that technological media are staples or natural resources, exactly as are coal and cotton and oil. Anybody will concede that society whose economy is dependent upon one or two major staples like cotton or grain or lumber or fish or cattle is going to have some 
obvious social patterns of organization as a result. Stress on a few major staples creates extreme instability in the economy, but great endurance in the population. The pathos and humor of the American South are embedded in such an economy of limited staples. For a society configured by reliance on a few commodities accepts them as a social bond quite as much as the metropolis does the press. So what he's doing is drawing a very complex analogy to the idea that technological media is essentially a form of a commodity or raw material resource. And essentially, if we're tying ourselves to this one commodity, this one raw material, this one resource, and we focus so much of our infrastructure around this, then any sort of compromise to that creates a dissolution, a disintegration, a, a, a catastrophe, a crisis in that society that relies upon it. So back to the uh, uh, paragraph here. Cotton and oil, like radio and TV, become fixed charges on the entire psychic life of the community. And this pervasive fact creates the unique culture, cultural flavor of any society. It pays through the nose of all its other senses for each stable that shapes its life. That our human senses, of which all media are extensions, are also fixed charges on our personal energies, and that they also configure the awareness and experience of each one of us may be perceived in another connection mentioned by a psychologist Carl Gustav Jung. Every Ro- This is from Jung now. Every Roman was surrounded by slaves. The slave and his psychology flooded ancient Italy, and every Roman became inwardly and, of course, unwittingly a slave. Because living constantly in the atmosphere of slaves, he became infected through the unconscious with their psychology. No one can shield himself from such an influence. That was from his work, Contributions to Analytical Psychology, uh, 1928. And this very last, this gets into Bertrand Russell. I'll read this last small paragraph. And I think it's important what he's saying is there's this feedback between um, what you're relying upon um, in regards to the, the labor of the people you're exploiting and then how much you superimpose the top-down situation, to tyrannical hierarchy that creates on the society at large and you yourself become essentially embedded in that hierarchy and become a slave in your own right in a very different way. And so you end up adopting the the concept of slavery ends up the concept itself is like an energetic thought form going back to James H. Billington talking about the adoption of revolutionary ideas becomes its own form of enslavement. This, this feedback with this idea, this concept that we give life to in terms and words becomes its own sort of like uh, egregore, this manifestation that becomes its own uh, feedback that creates the same situation that you're trying to exploit from other individuals. So in other words, you become the very thing you're trying to avoid or exploit is basically what he's saying. Now, just this last paragraph here. It was Bertrand Russell who declared that the great discovery of the 20th century is the technique of the suspended judgment. Free-floating anxiety, suspending judgment. Anyways, back to the quote. A. Albert North Whitehead, on the other hand, explained how the great discovery of the 19th century was the discovery of the technique of discovery. Sort of this meta-discovery, if you will. It's the process of under science is basically what they're saying. Namely, the technique of starting with the thing to be discovered and working back step by step as on an assembly line to the point at which it is necessary to start in order to reach the desired object. And the arts is meant starting with the effect and then inventing a poem, painting, or building that have just that effect and no other. But the technique of the suspended judgment goes further. It anticipates the effect of, say, an unhappy child or not on an adult and offsets the effect before it happens. In psychiatry, it is a technique of total permissiveness extended as an anesthetic for the mind 
while various adhesions and moral effects of false judgments are systematically eliminated. This is a very different thing from the numbing or narcotic effect of new technology that lulls attention while the new form slams the gates of judgment and perception. Let me reread that. This is the very, so what he's, he's, he's sort of drawing this sort of, uh, he's juxtaposing these two ideas together, drawing an analogy between them. Uh, this idea of techniques of suspended judgment, that meta-analysis, one could say. You're starting with the thing and you're working backwards to you know, find, how, to find inspiration and find how it works, in other words. Uh, like an assembly line process, a process of deduction to get to towards causal or central units. Makes sense. And you do this in psychiatry, you know, uh, psychoanalysis, so forth and so on. But then all of a sudden, Marshall McLuhan comes in and says, wait a second, this whole process is very different. This is a very different thing from the numbing or narcotic effect of a new technology that lulls attention while the new form slams the gates of judgment and perception. For massive social surgery is needed to insert new technology into the group mind, and this is achieved by the built-in numbing apparatus discussed earlier. Now, the technique of suspended judgment presents the possibility of rejecting the narcotic and postponing indefinitely the operation of inserting the new technology on the social psyche. A new stasis is in prospect. So he gets into more evidence there. He tries to build out his theory. I think it's important to note that the reason why I bring this up, and I read a number of uh, paragraphs from various works here, is how much we become slaves to these concepts and how much these concepts, we, we sort of imbue them with life. But what's even more disturbing is how these concepts are being essentially per- perpetuated by these mediated interfaces after a time where there's already so much free-floating anxiety, where there's so much atomization, where there's so much isolation, which only creates uh, a situation where there's even greater need to ground ourselves in something or someone or some message that makes sense for us and then find feedback in these closed system loops to sort of uh, give a sense, give meaning, give purpose. And that's what happened with COVID. Uh, Instead of seeing ourselves as humans as part of suffering a very tragic situation around the world, we divided ourselves and vaccinated versus unvaccinated people were trying to understand the origins of it versus people who um, don't take it very seriously versus people that uh, may not even believe in viruses versus people that believe or hypochondriacs. I mean, it's just been nothing but complete divide and conquer on such a granular level. Like you can find it's almost fractal in nature where you can find that the smallest and smallest scale represents the largest scale at the same pattern. And, uh, you know, it's it's interesting that this is the visionary from the 1964 speaking about this, right? Where he's talking about suspended judgment is really this idea of meta-analysis. That can we take a step back, as Rich said earlier, and view things sort of dispassionately, critically analyze things, have greater discernment and judgment, increase that space between stimulus and response? Can we do that? I think that's sort of what, to a certain extent, loosely, McLuhan is suggesting with this idea of suspended judgment. But then he's saying here that, wait, there's a there's a literal effect on the body like a drug on consciousness, like a drug on the body or a drug on consciousness if it mediates serotonin. There's there's something happening when you inter you put in this mach- this machine or mediated interface. It uh, creates a situation where we become more passive and even more accepting uh, accepting of it of the situation. I think that's like a major difference that needs to be highlighted because it actually can have more grave consequences for perpetuating uh mass psychosis 
for, you know, I want to say indefinitely, but possibly indefinitely until we find ways to break people out of sort of a hypnotic spell. Um, in a way, you can think of it as a dark magician's tool. It's like their new tool in the toolbox. This is alluded to by Alan Moore, uh, the great uh, 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 writer, novelist. He was a graphic novelist um, for people out there. It's like uh, comic books, if you will. Uh, he wrote the V for Vendetta and the Watchmen and, you know, those famous that have been turned into books. But he talked about how he related the idea of language to magic, which is kind of what Billington is alluding to a little bit. You know, um, very loosely, but that's, and he actually, Billington literally gets into mystery schools in his work. And so here you see how, in a way, McLuhan is also relating it to magic, but he's relating it to like an effect on consciousness that allows for the way in which people manipulate our consciousness to have a greater effect. So it amplifies these ideological movements is essentially kind of where McLuhan is going with this. That literally, as he says, this is a very different thing from the numbing or narcotic effect of new technology that lulls attention while the new form slams the gates of judgment and perception. It slams the gates of judgment and perception. It decreases the space even more so than actually the mass formations that existed in the past when you were at least a part of a larger social environment. There's a shared energy a part of that. There's really no shared energy. The shared energy is through a computer through a digital representation of someone else speaking to you, such as myself speaking to you right now, even. So it's um, not to say that the information technology hasn't been incredible. We wouldn't be able to understand and have all this for me to share all this information either for rich to be able to do the research that he's done and find the books he's done and put out the podcast. So it's not to say there isn't a positive effect there, but um, you know, when Matias mentioned that I just had to, I thought that really hit home in regards to making people aware as far as it, larger deep dive of how much concepts, terms, words, how we communicate with one another can become, especially with technological interfaces, become their sort of own prisons. And the fact that like when they mentioned this idea of isolated mass formation, and this is mediated through to new technologies, I was like, oh, that's a that's something that's been warned about for quite some time. So, um, you know, very interesting. And I should really play the clip from Alan Moore talking about magic this magic and, and language being really one and the same thing because language is essentially the controlling the mind. I talk about this all the time. I talked about it in my logic course. I've talked about it on GTW. Um, mind control is literally the control of language. If you control language, you control the mind. If you control what can be said, you control what people can think about. You control how people then respond to those who th say things that are outside the norm, that maybe present concepts that are not kosher with what is the reigning power structure. And then all of a sudden you're in a situation where you create again, another um, polarization and, uh, and uh, mass formation, if you will. And so that's why every dictator throughout history has always attempted first and foremost to control language, control language. Um, that is the most important thing. And what has been done through this COVID-19 narrative through through especially these mediated interfaces, the control of language. You know, you're not allowed to talk about lab leak. You're not allowed to talk about side effects of the vaccine. You're not allowed to talk about effective therapeutics. You're not allowed to talk about origins. Um, or I guess I mentioned lab leaks. Uh, you, you know, you're you're not if you're not uh, you're not allowed to talk about the ineffectiveness of masks. And that goes for, by the way, everything they, you know, that's been, that extrapolates out into the cultural revolutions, revolutions, progressiveness, progressiveness that is going on in regards to, um, the, the sexualization of children and, uh, 
all the, the the racial divide that's you know they're trying to really force on a, a people's perception of America and Americans. You know, it's all these different divide and conquer strategies, but it's being perpetuated. It's being amplified by these mediated interfaces because we're more isolated now than we ever have been. When they cited the research earlier on that uh, people feel lonely and meaningless, that's absolutely true. That's why individuals like Peterson um, have become such rock stars as intellectuals in a way, because all of a sudden he came out and, you know, he related to this idea that, yeah, there's this there's this lack of meaning and lack of purpose. And that it runs deep into the human psyche, into our collective consciousness, if you if one collective unconscious, if you believe in Carl Jung's theory, or or spiritual traditions, if you're more of a, someone who uh, has a penchant for that. And it relates really to our, our essence of what it means to be human, to think, to feel, to speak, to communicate, um, to love. The, all these, all these, you know, functions that make up the mind, body, soul complex. So, anyways, I just wanted to give people a sense of that. I thought that was really powerful. Now. Um, it's 312 i'm going to continue with what we're supposed to do um as far as the intermission i didn't think that was going to be as long as the deep dive as i wanted it to be but uh definitely check it out by the way it's only it's a small i don't know 20 pages of medium is the message it's like the first chapter i think or it's one of the chapters in marshall McLuhan's 1964 book so check it out it's a really famous essay man was a hyper genius and uh, being able to understand the impact that the technology would have on future generations um it's funny when sam tripoli is talking about things like uh, uh Pornhub and stuff like that like um and you know how much we're getting into base animal desires and how much that is a reflection back of ourselves marcia McLuhan sort of you know in a more abstract way warned us about this he kind of he was a christian very devout catholic i should say so, you know, he has that bias to him, but he had a very interesting, he's more of like the Tolkien type or the, um, uh, uh, spacing on his name right now. Oh man, I can't believe it. Anyways, the, the point is, they had this idea that we're manifest the Christ or Antichrist, which I think if you take away those terms and say you manifest like the, the animal side of ourselves, our base desires that's one thing that technology will show us or we can manifest the, the best aspect of ourselves utilize it to better ourselves to form communities to get to understand our world and to have access to incredible amounts of information um to be able to come up with new technologies to help heal the human body all these sorts of things in other words technology would be essentially it would cast a shadow of our own collective unconscious back on ourselves and make it conspicuous and we'd be forced to see ourselves naked before in a very psychedelic way and that's sort of what's happening we can literally see that i think uh, most obviously most conspicuously at any other time in history because of the, the rate of information transfer and the way we interact with these machines so you had this is brilliant idea of how like it's essentially going to either manifest one or the other and we'll have to see you know how that how that works out um and whether or not we'll learn from you know this imbalance between our animal desires and our higher consciousness, our reason, and our, you know, the, the intellectual virtues, if you will, as Aristotle described it.